Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul is about to die. He's at the end of his ministry. He's in prison. He's about to be executed. Most of his friends have abandoned him. They're afraid of suffering persecution. And in this situation, Paul understands that the continued existence of the church does not depend on him or on any other individual person. From his prison cell, he reminds Timothy to go to the Scriptures. He points Timothy to the Scriptures. He exhorts Timothy to preach and teach the Word of God. But not just in any way. But he instructs Timothy to preach and teach in such a way that he follows the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me. Now, that word pattern in verse 13 is in Greek the word from which we get our word type. It represents something which is a model or a sketch or an outline. Follow the model, follow the sketch, follow the outline of sound words, the structure of sound words that you have heard from me. So what is Paul saying to Timothy? He's saying this. He's saying, Timothy, you've received the gospel, but not just as a pile of unrelated truths. You've received the gospel as a body of teaching with a certain structure. You've received what I call in verse 14, a good deposit. And now by the power of the Holy Spirit, you need to guard it. You need to hold on to it. You need to guard the deposit entrusted to you. Now, if you have your Bible open, just look on the left-hand page, if you've got the same version I do anyway, or the same edition. Look at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, where he uses the same language. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. And if we look at that verse, we get a little bit of a clue as to what he's talking about, because he shows us in that verse what the opposite of the deposit is. Guard the deposit, he says in 1 Timothy 6, 20, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. So the good deposit is something which is in opposition to false knowledge and to things which make you swerve away from the faith. Swerve away from the truth. And if you have your Bible handy, look back in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, where he says, oh, sorry, let me, let me rephrase that. If you, let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Because that good deposit that he receives from the apostle, he ought not just to guard and hold on to, but he has to pass it on. We read it in our reading. What you have heard from me, this is 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. So Paul gave a structured set of teachings to Timothy. He said, Timothy, hold on to that, guard it, and then pass it on to the next generation of preachers. What does this mean? Well, it means this. It means that God doesn't want preachers who color outside of the lines. God doesn't want preachers that come up with new and exciting theological truths and innovations. God doesn't want preachers who, who preach messages which cater to the feelings and the felt needs of their audience. 
But God has given to the church, through the prophets and the apostles, he has given to the church a body of truth, which Paul describes as a pattern of sound words. And the word sound there has to do with healthy, as in being of sound health. A pattern of sound or healthy words, a good deposit, which needs to structure the teaching of the church, which needs to be lived by, and which needs to be passed on from one generation to the other. Now, when you start talking about structure and teachings and doctrines that have to be passed on, some people start getting real uncomfortable. They start chafing. That doesn't sound like a living and a lively and a, an exciting and joyful Christianity. It sounds kind of crippling and oppressive. And you might read about or watch on YouTube or hear people in real life talking in this way, no creed but Christ, they say. I don't need all kinds of documents and, and structured theology and, and doctrines written down. I just need Jesus. I don't, want to be, I don't want to be religious. I just want to be spiritual. I don't need a creed. I just need Jesus. Sounds really nice. Sounds so Christ-focused. But it's absolutely wrong. Because it's self-refuting in what they say they refute themselves immediately. When I say no creed but Christ, then what I have just said is a creed. The word creed comes from the Latin word credo, which is the verb I believe. So a creed is something that you believe. And so when I say no creed but Christ, I'm saying, well, my belief is that there should be no creeds. That's a belief. That's a creed. A creed is something you believe. A creed is something you live by. And every person has a creed. Every church has a creed. It might not be written down, but every church has a creed. Even if they say they don't, they have one. It's very easy. Go to a church that has no creed and try saying something, teaching something, doing something that they don't agree with. And you will find out very quickly where they draw the lines. And so... The pattern of sound words to which the apostle refers are summaries of healthy doctrine. Now, sometimes when people hear the word doctrine, they say, well, why doctrine? Isn't doctrine something boring and difficult and deadening? Isn't doctrine something maybe for the seminary class and for professors, but doesn't it kill joy and, and worship when we come together as God's people. A lot of people think that, a lot of people say that, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible does not teach us that the opposite of doctrine is joy and worship. And now let's go to the first letter of Timothy, as we were going to do before. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. And take a good look at what the apostle contrasts with Sound doctrine. You see that there in verse 10 there? 1 Timothy chapter 1. Let's start in verse 9. He's talking about people who are ungodly, who are sinners, unholy, profane, people that beat their moms and dads, murderers, sexually immoral people, people that engage in homosexual sex, enslavers, Liars, perjurers, 
and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So on the one hand, he puts sound doctrine, and over against that, he doesn't put joy in worship, but against sound doctrine, he puts all of the bad, sinful, wicked things that describe a world without God, that describe a life of sin. That's the biblical contrast. It's not doctrine against joy and worship. It's doctrine against sin and wickedness. Doctrine is necessary for joy and worship. We can't say, let's forget doctrine, let's just live for Jesus. Because without doctrine, without scripture teaching, we have no idea of who Jesus is or what he has done or how to live for him. We need the pattern of sound doctrine for that. I've worked for many years in Brazil and amongst some of the charismatic churches, I would sometimes meet people that were very new to the faith. They were new to the church. They had just a few days ago, a few weeks ago, come into some charismatic church and within a very short order of time, they were leading worship and leading praise. These were people that came from a, a, an unbelieving background. They didn't know the Lord before. And if you ask these people, all this joy, all this jumping up and down and, and this, this, this incredible praise, what are you praising Jesus for? Who is Jesus? What has he done? They would have no answer. You see, if you have no doctrine... You cannot have true worship. If you have no creed, you have no Christ. Now, for thousands of years, the church has used patterns of sound doctrine, sketches and summaries of scriptural truths to help teach the children of the church and new believers to witness to the world in which we live what we believe, to help distinguish between gospel truth and false teaching and heresy. And we see that in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. That's just right after our text. You see that? 1 Timothy, oh, sorry. I'm, I'm confusing my Timothys here this, uh, this afternoon. Let's go to 1 Timothy 1, 15. So it is the first letter. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. You know those words there, the saying is trustworthy? That's, that tr the word trustworthy is connected to the word for faith in Greek. And so whenever the apostle introduces something with those words, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, it is most likely a reference to a saying, a catechetical statement, even though it's very short, that was memorized or that was recited by new believers and by the children of the church, by the congregation. He's referring to a generally known saying, and he's saying this is true, and then he goes on to quote that saying. And so already in the scriptures, we see some pithy summaries of gospel truths which functioned as a very tiny little creed. And we see a larger one in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. This is a bit of a larger one. And look at the language the apostle uses here. 1 Timothy 3, 16. Great indeed, we confess 
He's saying it right there. There's a confession coming up here. It's a confession. It's a creed. It's something we believe. Great indeed, we confess is the mystery of godliness. And then he recites a very short creed. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Kind of like a tiny little Apostles' Creed. A little bit of a different angle. But that's what we see there in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And then if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 and 4, you'll see there something which you will find familiar. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 and 4. Listen to what the apostle says. For I delivered to you, I deposited with you of, as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And you see a few of the lines of our Apostles' Creed right there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. These are a few articles that we still have and we recite every Sunday. And so this pattern of sound words, this deposit of healthy, life-giving doctrine which holds the church in the gospel is something which Paul received, he passed it on to Timothy, and he instructs Timothy to pass it on to the next generation of preachers. This is the duty of the pastors, and when I say pastors, I mean the preachers and the elders of the church. Let's turn to Titus chapter 1 verse 9 for a moment, and see what it says about the duty of the elders with respect to this pattern of sound teaching or sound doctrine. Titus chapter 1 verse 9, elders must hold to the trustworthy word as taught so that they may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. There it is again, sound doctrine, and also rebuke those who contradict it. Now, what happens when pastors do that? When they follow the pattern of sound words received from the apostles? Then they and the church, according to our text, remain in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That's what he says. Follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The apostle clearly doesn't believe that following a pattern of sound teaching is going to be faith deadening and drive you away from an experience of Christ's love. It's the opposite. He says, follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Because that's what informs our faith. When the sound words are received and passed on, when they're taught, when they're believed, when they're embraced, then the pastors and the congregation remain in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That's what informs our faith. That's what fills us with love for Christ and joy in Christ. It's those glorious doctrines of who he is and what he has done. And when we know them, when we delight in them, when we teach them, when we learn them, that's how we experience the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. A church filled with the power of the Holy Spirit is not a church which caters to how you feel about yourself or how you feel about the world or how you feel about God. But a church filled with the power of the Holy Spirit 
is a church which has pastors and teachers of whom it can be said that they guard the good deposit that was entrusted to them. They receive it, they teach it, they pass it on. This is important for us. We live in an age which values feeling over facts. And we see that in almost every area of life, even going into biology. And you wonder how long the world can go on this path before the world realizes how absolutely ridiculous it is. But it comes into the church as well, feelings over facts. Because we're swimming in this, in this cultural pool of, of the emphasis on feeling, and it, it comes into the life of the church as well. What does the Bible say? The Bible says in Jude chapter 1, verse 3, speaks of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. You can't pass on feelings. The church doesn't pass on feelings. The church passes on the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The good deposit, that pattern of sound teaching. The church passes on a body of truth, and that body of truth is life-giving, and it is life-changing because it makes us grow in faith in Christ, and it makes us grow in the love of Christ. And that's why when we begin this week another season of catechism teaching and preaching, we need to praise God for it. And we need to really, really value what's happening. You may remember from last year, at the end of August, I preached a sermon on catechetical teaching. And I drew your attention to the fact that in the scriptures, the word catechize and catechumen actually occurs a number of times. Catechesis or catechizing or catechism teaching is not something that St. Albert Canadian Reformed Church made up one day or the Canadian Reformed Church is just kind of sucked out of their thumb. But it is something which is rooted already in the Scriptures. And it has been the practice of the church Catholic for thousands of years. In fact, even in the Old Testament already, catechesis, catechism teaching, was happening. Faithful summaries of Scripture, structured doctrine, being learned and taught and passed on. And when that happens, those faithful summaries of Scripture doctrine act like maps which help us to explore the Scriptures and dig into them and mine from them the precious truths of God's Word. And so when we're following the pattern of sound words, and they're faithfully summarizing and systematizing God's Word, then they help us to grow in the unity of faith, and the knowledge and the love of Christ. It's going to be something life-giving. It's going to be something good and healthy as long as we don't just do it out of custom and superstition, as long as we don't just do it pro forma because we have to. But if we do it, as our text says, in the power of the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And so as we study the creeds and confessions together as families, as congregation, may we do it in the power of the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And may it be that the catechism drives us to the Word and inspires us to say, Lord Jesus, I want to know you. I want to know who you are. I want to know 
what you have done. I want to know how you want me to live. I put my trust in you. I love you. Lord, I live in a world of lies and deception and darkness, deceit and and treachery. Send forth, O God of my salvation, your light and truth to be my guide. Amen. Let's respond by singing the psalm from which